betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given thanks into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I remember hearing an expression when I was growing up that said, uh, out of sight, out of mind. That expression is uh, pretty self-explanatory. The idea, of course, is that if you don't see a person or maybe even a possession for a period of time, it's very easy to kind of factor that person or thing out, out of your mental framework. They're no longer on your radar. And I, I want to assure you that uh, those of you who are watching us online this morning, that uh, you may be out of sight for the present moment, but you are sure not out of mind. Um, and that uh, not only pertains to those of you who are members of this good church, but also for people who are joining us online and have been doing so for a number of weeks and even months now. We want you to know how delighted we are that you are with us. And uh, there's a song that we used to sing, we are one in the spirit, we're one in the Lord. And I think about that every Sunday morning when I get up here and I realize that not only do we have a good number here present this morning physically, but people from all over, literally all over the United States who are uh, joining us online. And we welcome you to this worship service this morning. Joe read the uh, crux of what went on in John chapter 13. And let me say that it's uh, easy, I think, to perhaps respond in at least a couple of different ways on that response continuum as we look at this passage. One response is to kind of take it lightly and to say, oh, foot washing. So that's where that came from. And the other is to recognize that what Jesus did in this passage is one of the most impacting things that Jesus ever said or did in all of his personal ministry. And, and, and if you're not on that side of the continuum, I hope you will be once we get through with this study this morning. Because we I, I more fully appreciate, I think, the significance of what is taking place in this passage when we understand something of the background. When we appreciate the backstory that uh, has transpired leading up to this time, we, we have to appreciate, for one thing, that this was the Passover feast. And, and in fact, it was going to be the very last Passover that our Lord would observe before he went to the cross. Jesus knew that his time had come uh, for him to leave this world and, and to go back to the Father's right hand. So I just want us to start off our study this morning by appreciating that Jesus knew that it was time for him to leave this world and, and go back to his place of glory. So this is not just any Passover. It's Jesus' last Passover. It's his last few hours to be with these men that he loved the very most. This is really equivalent to a deathbed scene. And you might think of it in those terms as we walk through this passage this morning. I hope you have your Bible open to John chapter 13 because we're going to be referencing a number of the verses in our text this morning and, and re relating to them and referring to them as, as we study. It's in that context then, this kind, of, this kind of deathbed scene that's taking place here, that Jesus and these men are gathered for this holy occasion. 
And it's the last holy occasion that Jesus would take part in before his death that, that we read the last statement of verse 1. A literal translation of John 13, 1 would sound like this. Having loved his own who are in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He loved them to the utmost. Now, if that hasn't captured your attention yet, I hope that it will. Especially that last, last phrase, he loved them to the utmost. When you appreciate what Jesus, the kind of relationship that Jesus has developed with these men who are so important to him personally and to his ministry, you have to ask yourself, what's about to happen? What is it that Jesus is going to do to show them the, the ultimate measure of his love and his devotion and affection for these men? So given the significance of this occasion, what would we expect for Jesus to do? i tell you what we would not expect him to do. One of the things he doesn't do, for example, is that, uh, that we might expect would be some speech making. You know, Jesus could easily have gone around the room. He could have picked out each of those men and said, let me tell you exactly personally what it is about you that I admire and appreciate the very most. And he could have spent some time talking about as, as we kind of do in, in those departing sort of situations where I'm not going to see you now for a long, long time. But let me tell you how much I appreciate you and, and here's why. Maybe another possibility that did not transpire is that Jesus would hand out some mementos or keepsakes. Maybe something that does, meant a great deal to him that he would be able to hand over to each of these men and say, now, I hope that you will use this now in the ongoing of my ministry in the kingdom of Christ as it is about to be established. And so there's all kinds of ways that we could, we could uh, follow up verse 1 by saying, I, I think here's what Jesus could have done, and maybe here's what he should have done, but he didn't do any of those things. Please notice very carefully in this text what Jesus does do. The Bible says simply but profoundly. In fact, I think it is profound in its simplicity. What Jesus does do is get down on his knees and wash the disciples' feet. Now, if you haven't read John 13 before, you probably didn't see that coming. But all of us, I assume, in this uh, auditorium and most of you online have, have read John 13 at some point in your, in your devotions and in your study. And so you, you knew what was coming. And you knew that that's exactly what Jesus did. Look at specifically, if you will, at verses 2 through 5. In order to show them the full extent of his love. Now, again, get that as the framework in your mind. The evening meal has already been served. The devil, the Bible actually says quite explicitly, has already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray the Lord. So all of those things are now at work. And Jesus, understanding that the Father had put all things under his feet, that he had come from God, and that he was soon going to be returning to God, he gets up from the meal, he takes off his outer garment, he wraps the towel around his waist, and after that he pours some water into a basin, and he begins to wash the feet of those disciples. And then the Bible says he dried them with the towel that he had wrapped around his waist. Very easy for you to read that and then just move on. But, but let's think about that for a moment. Isn't that absolutely astounding? That our God would wash between the toes of his disciples. That he would lower himself to that degree to demonstrate to them, and remember again the framework of verse 1, to demonstrate to them the full extent of his love. 
not speech making, not handing out mementos, getting down on the floor and washing their feet. He gets up from the table. He's willing to take on a task that's so dirty that he has to take his good shirt off so that he doesn't mess it up. In fact, we know from reading other places in Scripture as well as from cultural history that it's such a dirty job that the lowliest servant in the household usually got stuck with that job. If they had guests over, he not only had the responsibility of washing the feet of the proprietor of the house, but all of the guests. And you can imagine that that wasn't a very pleasant task. And the only reason that no one had already done that in this particular scenario is because there weren't any slaves in the room in order to take care of it. So that kind of implies that when they rented this room, that it did not, you know, it did not include catering service. And it did not include having servants that would come in and do that rather ignominious task. Now watch this very carefully. Jesus Christ is willing to get up from the table. And move himself down from a position of superiority, and I think that we would all agree that that's where he was as the Son of God made flesh, to a position of equality, past that to a position of inferiority, to get down on the floor, wash their feet, to show them the full extent of his love. And even though that act was so startling, and in fact, I guess the right word would be appalling, To anyone who knew anything about the cultural sensibilities of that day, you'll notice in the text it spelled out for us. It was repugnant to the men who were on the receiving end of this act to the degree that they begged Jesus not to do it, especially Peter. Please do not wash my feet. But still, it it strikes very close to the heart of what Jesus what Jesus realized and and wanted them to realize what real love and and real service were all about. Now, with that in mind, I want to mention quickly three things about this act of service in John chapter 13 that we ought to be able to take and apply to our own lives 2,000 years later. And if we've not been applying this lesson, I hope that we will start today. Number one, for Jesus, love is service. And you're probably thinking that's not very profound, and and you're right, at least on the surface. But we need to understand, again, what verse 1 means in light of what Jesus just did. In order to, remember, to show them the full extent of his love, he loved them to the utmost. How How do you show that to these men who have become so dear to him? Again, he washes their feet. Now, I think that we know that cognitively, But it's one of those things that we have to be reminded of because it's so very easy, I think, for us to get just caught up in the in the trappings of religiosity and and we can forget about the importance of simply being there when a foot needs washing or when a hand needs holding or when a sink full of dishes need washing to just be there to do it when the time is right. And that's the reason I think that the Lord told the story over in Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan, don't you? You think about why Jesus related that story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the man who's lying there in the ditch? He's beaten nearly to death within an inch of his life, and what he needs at that moment is help. He does not need sermons. 
He does not need pious platitudes. He doesn't even need a stack of get well cards. He needs someone to come down that road, to come around that curve, to see that man's need, and to actually help him in his current situation. That's what he needed most. And and anyone who read Luke 10 for the first time knew nothing about the parable of the Good Samaritan, probably would come to the same conclusion that someone who has a doctorate in biblical studies would come to. That's what the man needed the most. He needed some help. He needed some tangible assistance. And then Jesus spoke of of the reaction of the priest and the Levite, who not only neglected their responsibility and awesome opportunity to help this man and to demonstrate what their faith was all about, But the Bible says they actively avoided him. The text says they they passed by on the other side. They inconvenienced themselves to cross the road so that they could get away from this man who had a need so that they would not be inconvenienced. If you don't see the irony of that, I'll see you after services and explain it to you. But they inconvenienced themselves so that they would not be inconvenienced by this man's need. And then Jesus, by contrast, and I thank God, and I'm not being irreverent there, I thank God that he did, then contrast the compassion of that Samaritan who came down the road, saw the exact same situation as did the priest and the Levite, and went over and had compassion on that man and helped him in his present need. And you may remember that when the Lord finished that parable, he then asked the question, and which one was this man's neighbor? And they responded correctly, by the way. And what he's really saying is, which of these men, which of these men loved the man in the ditch? I think that's what he's asking. Which one of them showed agape love to the man who had been beaten and left in the ditch? And the obvious answer was and still is the one who showed mercy. The one who actually did something in response to the man's need. Now please appreciate that. Because love in the Bible, agape love at least, is something that you do. It is a decision of will that manifests itself then in a tangible action. It is not just an emotion. It is not an affection. It's not a feeling. It is an act that is based upon our sincere desire to seek someone else's highest welfare even above our own. That's what agape love is every time it appears in Scripture. Again, it's not a feeling that you have. It's not seeing a need and then wondering maybe to yourself or maybe even out loud, why doesn't somebody do something? (laughs) Have you ever heard that question asked in the light of of someone's need? Why doesn't somebody do something? No, it's, it's manifesting spiritual humility and also initiative. Initiative has been defined as doing what's right without having to be told. And I think that's a good working definition. And so having agape love in our hearts and demonstrating agape love in our lives means willing to demonstrate in tangible action my concern for you and my desire to see your best welfare realized. And that's what took place in Luke chapter 10 with the Good Samaritan. But let's take that back and drop it down into John chapter 13 for a moment. That's exactly what Jesus was doing when he got down on the floor, wrapped the towel around his waist, and and washed his disciples' feet. So not only to Jesus was love service. That's point number one. Sometimes, secondly, folks, sometimes real love is ordinary service. 
And, and, and we struggle with that. And let me explain why. The Lord wanted us to know here in John 13 that true love, biblically defined, is not just a willingness to take up the towel and serve others when the need arises. But it's ordinary service that may not win us a lot of acclaim. It may not get our names in the headline of the local newspaper. Might not even get us mentioned in the church bulletin. See, I think part of that problem and that challenge for each of us in doing what Jesus did in John chapter 13, replicating that act, maybe not in physically washing someone's feet. I can imagine some scenarios where that very act would be necessary. But I mean in every area of life, when we as God's people see a need in someone's life, are we the ones willing to step up and say, I am going to do everything I can to meet that need? You see, to Jesus, that's what real love is all about. But sometimes it's just ordinary service. And the challenge lies, I think, in the problem is that we are drawn to heroic acts of service, aren't we? That do make the headlines. That do get written up in Reader's Digest and Everyday Heroes section and those kinds of things. I mean, we hear stories like the little eight-year-old girl who woke up one morning in the middle of the night to uh, the smell of smoke and hearing the smoke alarms going off. And uh, to boil that story down, she, she went into her baby sister's room and picked her up and carried her out of the room and started down the steps. Problem was, the steps were already engulfed in flame. But she ran through that wall of flame, down those steps, and out into the yard. And, and, and in her little nylon night, nightgown had melted literally all over her body. She collapsed with her sister still in her arms on the, on the front yard. Her parents had perished in the flames. But I'm just sharing that to let you know that when we read those kinds of stories, we go, man, man, that's love. That, that's showing someone real, real love. Or we, we hear about the, the couple who, and, and I'm not making this up, this is an actual story that made the news about the couple who, whose car stalled on the railroad track. And I think I've told you this story before, but the problem was they didn't get out of the car when the train started coming. Because they had a, a baby in, in a baby seat in the back seat. So they're working over the back of the front seat trying to extricate their baby. They couldn't do it, so they finally just were able to manage to pull the seat belts off, take the baby in its car seat, and throw it out the window a moment, a nanosecond, before the train collided with their car and killed them both. And, and we, we read those kinds of things, and we go, man, that's love. And I think that's why sometimes we fail to get the full lesson from John 13. Because we're drawn to heroic measures of love. And I'm here to tell you because Jesus told his disciples on this occasion and us today that, that most of the time you will go through life without ever having an opportunity to show anybody heroic love. You'll go your whole life and never have to throw a baby off a railroad track is what I'm saying. It, it will just will not happen. But we have to tuck our kids into bed every night. Do we do that? Will we read them a story? Will we do those small things and take them to the park? Will we do the small things in life? In our service to others and in our relationship with others and especially the people who are most precious to us to show them the full extent of our love just as Jesus did. You see, there's the challenge. 
And we have opportunities to show this world what a true, true Christian love is, is to God and to the people around us. But, but again, not in a way that's going to win us a lot of acclaim. And it won't get you written up, again, in the Reader's Digest. It probably won't even get you in the Montgomery Advertiser in the Public Service peop- a profile section. So it's so easy to look for those heroic opportunities to show our love to people and, and, and maybe, you know, in the back of our minds get a little recognition at the same time. That we don't notice the little situations that come and go in which we could love others in a very real and in a very biblical way. And love just as fully and completely as Jesus did here in John 13. Now, before we start pointing fingers at other people, let me say that there is a guy in the New Testament that we know of as Simon Peter. I think really struggled with learning that lesson, don't you? Because you know, you know Peter's track record. You, knew, you know how impetuous Peter was. And, and when the other apostles were reluctant to say anything, Peter never was. In fact, I heard in a Bible class one time that Peter was the only guy in the Bible who just uh, opened his mouth long enough to change feet. You know? And, and that, that's true sometimes. And, and when it comes crunch time, when Jesus is about to die, and that's where we are in John 13. Again, remember, this is the last holy act. This is the last Passover that Jesus will observe before he goes to the cross. So Peter, I think, is a prime example of a person who had difficulty learning this lesson. A little later, right after John 13 and and the washing of the disciples' feet takes place, this very same evening, the Bible says that Peter is going to tell Jesus, eyeball to eyeball, I, I want you to know that I love you completely. I will never deny you. I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. And let's give Peter some credit. I think at that moment he was absolutely sincere. I think he was willing to sign that in blood. Lord, I I love you enough that I will never leave you no matter what happens to you. And and Jesus' response had to have shaken Peter to the soles of his feet. And you remember what that response was. He said, no, no, you're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up and before the rooster crows. And, And Peter then reaffirms his allegiance. He wants to argue the point with the Lord. And he says, oh, no, absolutely not. You don't understand. I love you more than that. And so he leaves Jesus' presence at that point. And what is Peter looking for? Here's what I think. I think he's looking for that heroic situation where he can go above and beyond the call of duty to do something heroically to show Jesus just how very much he loves him, but to show that heroically. And, and, and the Bible does tell us that when, when he thinks that situation is there, there's lots of people gathered around Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in order to arrest him. Peter thinks, now's my moment. And the Bible says he pulls his sword and he attacks. And he's probably thinking as he does that, now the Lord will know just how very much I love him. I'm willing to put my neck on the line, pull my sword and attack men who clearly outnumber any of us. And I'm willing to attack in order to show the Lord my love for him. So all of that takes place. And you remember how Jesus responded to that. He who lives of the sword will die of the sword put your your sword away that's not the kind of that's not the kind of help i need right now peter a couple of hours later the bible says that peter is warming his hands built by the enemies by the fire that was built by the enemies of of the of jesus and and while he's warming his 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 hands by the enemy's fire somebody comes along and says hey aren't you one of one of them aren't you one of his number 
Now watch this carefully. This is when Jesus needs some allegiance and some loyalty the most, isn't it? This is when Jesus needs someone to step up and say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm one of his and, and whatever he gets, you can pour that on me as well. None of that happens. But this is the time when the Lord needs some loyalty. But, but Peter's thinking, you know, there's nothing heroic about somebody asking for ID. So he just says, nah, I never knew him. And in the process, watch this church. In the process, he misses his one golden opportunity to show Jesus the full extent of his love. And perhaps we miss opportunities just like that in our lives. That's why we're spending this time looking at this passage this morning. So please remember that a servant's heart is clearly revealed not just in acts of service, but in acts of ordinary service. Third and finally, Jesus' love is revealed and our love should also be manifests, not just in service, not just in ordinary service, but oftentimes it is demonstrated in solitary service. Back to our text. Have you ever thought about why Jesus had the opportunity in the first place to wash his disciples' feet? Look at verse 2. It clearly states, and supper having ended. Some translations actually say supper having been ended, but it all means the same thing. That is, they'd already finished eating. And guess what? You're supposed to have your feet washed before the meal ever starts. So there's already a social faux pas taking place here. We're, we're way behind in, in the foot washing thing. And so supper has ended. How did it come to be? And that's what I want to know when I read this text, that all of these men who had never demonstrated any reluctance in their respective occupation, remember most of these were, were blue-collar workers, common laborers, fishermen, carpenters, whatever. And they'd never demonstrated any reluctance in getting their hands dirty. All of a sudden here sat down with dirty feet, which was incredibly rude in that culture for at least two reasons. Number one, most people wore open sandals. And they walked almost everywhere they went in an arid region. That meant, guess what? Your feet got mighty dirty. And secondly, when you sat down with others for a meal, you did not sit down at a table on a chair like we do today. But the table was about knee high. And people would recline and lean on one elbow and they would recline around the table. Guess what? If your feet have not been washed, your dirty, stinky feet are in somebody else's face. No wonder it was considered to be rude. And yet the supper having been ended. And everybody around that table has dirty, stinky feet. Nobody got up and walked over to the towel and the basin and the water, which clearly were in the room, remember, that's what Jesus used. Nobody, maybe they looked at it on the way in. There it is. I sure hope somebody will do that. But no one of, not, not one of them was willing to do it. It happened simply and profoundly because no one else was willing to wash anybody's feet. This was grunt work. And as I mentioned earlier, it was usually done by the lowliest servant on the totem pole. Clearly, again, the basin and the water and the towel were already there. But none of them was willing to wash anybody else's feet. And this is the only conclusion that I can come to as a Bible student because of the humility of it. Because of the outright lack of hubris involved 
in getting down on your knees and washing somebody else's feet. I mean, even today, without us having that kind of, of cultural fabric surrounding our actions, that, that would be pretty, pretty difficult to do, wouldn't it? I, I mean, I, I, I love you, but I'd have to think twice before I got down and washed between your toes. And yet, that's what Jesus was willing to do because nobody else was willing to do it. So, folks, this is the essence of this lesson, and we're, we're about done. Not only is real love service, not only is it ordinary service, not only is it humble service, but sometimes a servant's heart is revealed in solitary service. Sometimes you'll be called upon to do the loving thing when nobody else in the room is willing to do it. Sometimes in our homes we'll be called, be called upon to be the one that bends, the one that humbles oneself, the one that is sacrificial in that relationship. When nobody else, the wife, the husband, the kids, or nobody else is willing to do it. Sometimes in, in God's church, his, his forever family, we're called upon to be the one that's willing to step back and not prefer our own interests, but to look to the interests of those around us and, and, and all of those commands that are sprinkled throughout the New Testament-inspired letters about how to get along in congregations. When nobody else is willing to do it, we are called upon to be the one who's willing to serve, not just in ordinary service but oftentimes in solitary service. And you can look around the room all you want to and wait for somebody else to take the initiative, and it won't happen because they're waiting on you. Are you the one who has a servant's heart? Are you the one that's willing to say, I'm not waiting for anybody else? Because God has already in the flesh demonstrated to me what I ought to do in this situation. Whether we're talking about on campus, whether we're talking about in a classroom somewhere, whether we're talking about here at church or at home or any, in a work relationship, any situation where we're called upon to serve someone else. It's so difficult to do that, to step forward when nobody else is willing to do it. And that may be the time, folks, and I'll just be absolutely frank with you, when it is hardest to love more than any other time when nobody else is willing to do it. Jesus does something in this passage that's mighty powerful. In a room full of people unwilling to serve, he serves. Now, here's one last thought. I think Matthew 25 is in the Bible for a, a tremendously wise reason. Because it bears out the importance of these routine day-to-day -day acts of service. You know the passage. It's judgment scene that Jesus is describing there in Matthew 25. And here's the time when the sheep are actually being separated from the goats. It is crunch time. This is the time when you're either going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or you're going to be condemned to eternity with all those who work for Satan. And here's... Here, and what's the standard of judgment in Matthew 25 that Jesus is using? It's very clear. Jesus said, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was without clothing and you did not help me out. I was lonely in prison. You never came to see me one single time. I was dying of thirst and you did not offer me even a drink of water. Not a thing there about any heroic act is there. Now all the situations talked about in Matthew 25 come up. And, and I hope that we notice this. If you have to write it down, please do that. All of those situations that Jesus talked about in Matthew 25 come up in the day-to-day -day routine of living. And did you notice how shocked the people are when Jesus relates the standard of judgment? 
and what he's going to be in the, in the day of judgment. They said, when, when, when was that, Lord? I mean, when did, if I'd known that was you, that would have been newsworthy. Man gives the Son of God a drink of water? That, that would have made the Jerusalem Gazette, I'm pretty sure. When did I not give you a drink of water and, and, and not give you clothes? Or when in the world did I not feed you when you were hungry? And you remember Jesus' response, Inasmuch as you did it not, and to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it not unto me. In, in the most ordinary, mundane, routine, humble circumstances of life, You didn't do it to any of my brothers, and so therefore you did not do it to me. And then Jesus said, I just wanted you to know, that's what I'm going to be talking about when Judgment Day gets here. I'm going to be talking about these these kinds of ordinary day-to-day acts of service. And, And because it just may be that if you have learned to serve those kinds of people around you, to see that need and to have the heart of compassion that's willing to address it in a tangible act of service, then maybe, just maybe, you've grasped something of what I'm about. And on the other hand, if you have not learned how to humble yourself and to serve those kinds of people around you, then maybe, maybe you have yet to figure out what I think real love and real service really are. And among all of those wonderfully powerful things that Jesus taught us here in John chapter 13, and and the lessons are numerous, perhaps the most powerful is this. He's saying, if you want to be like me, if you want to be great in the kingdom, and, and by great I mean as defined by our Heavenly Father, you need to be vying for the towel and not for the throne. So love is service, not just fuzzy feelings. Not just nebulous emotions. Those things come and go with the changing of the wind. No, love and the service that attends it are, they are a decision that you make. They are an action that you take. It is a thing that you do that is right and not just because it's the easy thing to do. And it's not a super heroic opportunity that will come and go only once in your lifetime. No, folks, what we've been talking about this morning These opportunities to serve others with the love that Christ showed will will come about every single day. And maybe even dozens of times a day. In the most ordinary situations. And it is, in fact, a holy thing. What Jesus did here. Seems so humiliating, but it's holy. And I want us to appreciate even more than when we walked in this building this morning. That when we serve others and demonstrate that same kind of, same level, and same categorical type of agape love in our service to others, in any situation of life, that is a holy thing. I wonder this morning if following Jesus is something that you're very serious about. I have to wonder that. And it's not just because there's a song of encouragement coming up. I wonder if you're ready to serve the Lord. If you're willing to follow him in humble, holy, ordinary, solitary service. Are you willing to sign on the dotted line? I'm going to follow Jesus from this day forward. And that's a part of my job description. I understand that. And I'm willing to do that. And if you need to come this morning, folks, publicly to address some spiritual need in your life and to ask this good church to pray with you and for you, we'll be happy, more than happy to do that. 
Or if you need to come to the Lord for the very first time and confess him as the Son of God and to be baptized, to have his blood wash away your sins, to begin to live the kind of life that we've been talking about this morning, that we've been describing, that's committed to his ideals and following him and his labor of love, I think you ought to come while we stand, while we sing.